exemplified in Ruth chapter 3. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning. Lord, we are desperate for you and we need you. Not only do I need you in this, this duty that you've called me to this morning to preach your word, but also as we listen to your word, help us to be hearers of the word and, and also doers. I pray the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. For you are our rock and, and our redeemer. Lord, we love you and we thank you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Life, well, life, life can be harsh. It can be messy. Life is messy, and the difficulties of life have the ability to blind us to the presence and the power and the work of God, leaving us feeling empty, leaving us feeling the despairing reality of hopelessness. Harvard just recently did a study on Americans ranging from 18 to 29 years old. And an overwhelming 51% of those who were polled reported that they are living with a debilitating fear of hopelessness, a debilitating feeling of hopelessness, a hopelessness that has left them bitter, depressed, anxious, agitated, and, 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 and just a general feeling that nothing matters. And as a result, this is what has happened. These young people have withdrawn from their friends, they have withdrawn from their family, and they've even withdrawn from the church. Now, hopelessness can be a result of many things. It could be due to financial issues, it could be relational problems, health concerns, or a number of other negative circumstances that can lead one to the feeling of hopelessness. But the truth is, when you place your hope in anything other than God, Hopelessness is inevitable. You can expect it. Why? Well, because situations change. Relationships can end. Jobs can be lost. And our health and livelihood are fragile. And this was a Naomi's experience. Remember, she placed her hope in a husband. She, re, she placed her hope in her sons and the potential of having grandkids. But when all that was taken from her, when she lost her husband, she lost her sons, and her daughter-in-law was barren, what, what did that leave her? She felt hopeless. She felt broken. She felt bitter. She had misplaced her hope. She had placed her hope in the wrong place. Maybe like Naomi, you too have misplaced your hope. Maybe like Naomi and the thousands of young people who were polled by Harvard, maybe you also have felt bitter this holiday season, anxious, depressed, alone. Well, this morning, I want to invite you to experience and accept the steadfast love of God. And in preparation for this morning, my prayer for you is that your heart would overflow with hope that is unshakable, a hope that is immovable, and that it will free you to pursue a life of passionate obedience to God. That you would be passionate about doing what is good and what is right. You see, when you are confident in God's steadfast love for you, you will have a hope that enables you to pursue a life of virtue, a life of integrity. It will enable you to live like Jesus and to love Jesus and to lead others to Jesus, while also providing you with the thrilling impulse to take risks for the sake of the gospel. And in Ruth, we will see these truths displayed in all three of our characters, in Naomi, in Ruth, and in Boaz's life, through four scenes. And so I'm going to give you these four scenes 
and then we'll work through them. Scene one is the plan. Scene two is the proposal. Scene three is the promise. And scene four is the provision. And this whole act, we can title it The Perilous Proposal. But before we dive into these four scenes, I need to give you a disclaimer. This story is full of suspense, as we will see, and as we heard when we read, but not every detail in Ruth chapter 3 is fully explained. There is some ambiguity here, and it's on purpose. The narrator leaves some things ambiguous for the sake of the narration. Not every detail is explained fully. There's some cultural practices that we will not fully understand, and as a result, we're going to be left with some, some questions. And, and also, the sensuality that is in this story may make some of us a little uncomfortable. But the tension is important to the narrative. And for us to fully understand it, we have to sit in this tension, and we're going to have to be okay with being a little bit uncomfortable this morning. Is that okay with you? You have no choice, all right? We're going to do it. Let's take a look. Scene one, the plan. Look at verse one. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, Shin and I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of. Remember, Naomi was once blinded by bitterness due to her misplaced hope. She had once again, though, as we left last week in Ruth chapter 2, she had once again hoped in God. And as a result of her hoping in God, she was no longer looking only for herself, only to herself. She was no longer thinking of her security and her comfort, but she was now thinking of others, particularly Ruth. And in this society, a woman's home her family. That was her life. That was her livelihood. That was her security. But more importantly, marriage would provide Ruth with safety and and a place in society and and with security. And as a married woman, Ruth would be protected. She would be protected from exploitation. She would be protected from oppression. And so Naomi tells Ruth, look, I don't mind you living here with me. This has been fun and all, and I'm thankful for your love and your care, but I think it's about time that you go find a man. Now, Naomi, she doesn't want Ruth to find just any man. Not any guy will do, but one who could provide her with an heir. One who could redeem the family. One who could continue Elimelech's family name. And it just so happens that Boaz, well, he fits the bill. He's part of the family and can fulfill the role of the family redeemer that we hinted at last week. The idea of a family redeemer is found in the law of Moses. It speaks of a close relative Specifically, a brother who was able to come to the aid of a family member. The instructions were that when a man died, his brother was obligated to marry his widow and raise up his children. He was even to give the dead man's name to the first child born in that marriage. This would ensure that the inheritance would continue in the family line and that, that this, this line would continue to be associated with this deceased relative. Now, the law, we have to understand, it doesn't obligate Boaz to do anything. He's not a brother. He was a distant relative. The law also didn't address foreigners that were married into the family, and that's Ruth's situation. In fact, when you look at the law and you look at Ruth, you see a lot of loopholes Boaz can take if he has no desire to, to help Ruth and to help Naomi. He can avoid this because there's so many reasons and excuses he can give. But Boaz, he's already been functioning as a sort of redeemer. He had taken Ruth into his field. He had protected her. He had given her an abundance of food to take home to Naomi. 
And so with that, Naomi sees some potential in Boaz. He's already been functioning as a redeemer, so maybe he's the one. However, it's been about seven to eight weeks since Ruth first met Boaz in the field. The harvest has ended, and with the harvest being over, and with Ruth no longer going to the field to work, Naomi needs to get a little creative. How can I get these two together? And she comes up with an interesting plan. Look at verse 2. Isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. The threshing floor was a slab of stone on a hill. And the farmers, they would go up to the threshing floor to separate their grain from the chaff and the, and the straw, all the undesired pieces of the, the plant. They would grab their pitchfork and they would toss it up in the air and the grain would fall to the ground because it was heavier and the chaff would blow away. And, and so they would then collect all their grain and that was how they separated it. And this job was usually done at night. And the reason it was done at night is because well, in the evening, the, the breezes were a little bit greater, and so they took advantage of those evening breezes. And now, these threshing room floors, they were communal places. This is the place that all the farmers and harvesters would show up to winnow their grain. They're shared by members of the village, and they were also a place of joy. They're a place of celebration because they symbolized that the harvest had come. However, threshing room floors also had a bad reputation. These weren't safe places. Farmers would have to sleep on site because if they didn't, their grain would be stolen. Thieves would come in and take their harvest. These places were also associated with immoral behavior, particularly prostitution. In other words, the threshing room floor was a dangerous place. It la- at, 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 mean, at minimum, it was a place that you would not want to send your daughter to, specifically in the middle of the night. But where we see a great risk... Naomi here sees a great opportunity, and she outlines a strategy. Look at verse 3. She tells Ruth, wash, put on perfumed oil, wear your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know that you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. Make sure that the guy's happy. And when he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. Then he'll explain to you what you should do. In other words, Ruth, if you're going to go and get Boaz, you need a bath. You need to wash up. This is good advice, okay? <laughs> you, need, you, need to, you need to take a bath. You need to put on some deodorant. You need to change your clothes. When I was a youth pastor, I was, there was advice I would give all the junior high boys. An axe is not a bath, okay? Axe spray doesn't suffice. But Ruth, she gets the same instructions. You need to clean up. But this speaks to something even greater. See, what Naomi is telling Ruth is... You have to understand, Ruth has been mourning the death of her husband. And so she's wearing clothes that signify this. Which would explain why Boaz has been a little romantically apathetic lately. (laughs) He hadn't made a move because, well, Ruth has been, she's been mourning. She's a widow. And so Naomi is saying, you need to change your clothes. You need to clean yourself up. Because this would be a visible announcement that she would be ready to start over, to start fresh, to go back to a regular life, which would include the possibility of marriage. Second, Ruth was to make herself attentive. Naomi says, Ruth, make note of where Boaz is working. Don't let him see you. I imagine Ruth hiding behind a bush. (laughs) Don't let him see you. Figure out where he's at. Wait. And after his workday is over, after he eats and he drinks and he falls asleep, he'll be in a good mood. That's when you make your move. 
And if we thought that this was risky for Ruth to go to this dangerous place in the middle of the night, here's where Naomi's advice gets a little sketchy. <laughs> a little bit weird, a little bit uncomfortable. She says, Ruth, once Boaz is asleep, you go in and take the blanket off his feet and lie down next to him. And don't you say anything. You wait and let him tell you what to do. It's not advice that you should give your daughter. <laughs> it's not hard to imagine some of the things that an ungodly man might conceivably want to do in such a situation. Remember, this is the time of the judges where men did whatever they wanted to do, whatever was right to them. What started out as, as risky has now become risque. Could Naomi really be instructing her daughter-in-law to try and seduce a husband and snare a man with her feminine attraction? Now, I don't believe that this is Naomi's attention here. There's many people that have gone in this direction in Ruth chapter 3, but this is not what I see in this, the text. Rather, the narrator here is being ambiguous. He's using a literary tool because he wants to highlight the potential danger of what Ruth is going to be doing. He wants Ruth's actions. He, 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 he knows that Ruth's actions will be mild, wildly misunderstood in this moment. See, what Naomi is suggesting is going to put Ruth's reputation and personal safety in grave danger. And so the author here is using a literary tool to help you feel that tension. In fact, if you remember, Boaz himself last week warned Ruth when she was in the field collecting grain, he said, don't go to any other field because if you do, you're not going to be safe because, well, you're going to encounter some men who will take advantage of you. How much greater would the danger of harm be? I mean, that was in the middle of the day in public. How much greater of a danger to present herself alone to a man in the middle of the night at the threshing room floor? Imagine Ruth would be quick to look at Naomi with this advice and say, lady, you're crazy. You're nuts. Well, how does Ruth reply in verse 5? She says, I'll do everything you say. In spite of the great risks, Ruth says, no problem, I got this, sure. She wholeheartedly and courageously accepts Naomi's plan here, which speaks to a couple of things. It speaks to Ruth's trust and loyalty to Naomi. It also speaks to her trust in Boaz's integrity. Remember, she's been working with the guy for the last seven, eight weeks. She has seen how he has cared for her, how he has protected her, and so she has trust in the man that she's going to go see. But even more so, it, it reflects her trust and confidence that she has in God. In other words, Ruth sees how Naomi is utterly confident that God will provide a redeemer for their family. She sees how eager Naomi is to encourage Boaz to be that redeemer. And what seems like a risky move for Ruth is actually a step of faith. It's, a, it's an action of audacious faith. Naomi presented Ruth with a risk, and in an act of faith, she says yes. But, we all know you go with intentions to do something. Sometimes the plan changes. So will Ruth stick to Naomi's plan? Well, let's take a look. Scene 2, the proposal. Verse 6. You hanging with me? Good? She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate and drank and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley. And she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. 
At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and was there lying at his feet was a woman. Now, put yourself in Boaz's sandals for a minute. You just put in a full day's of work. You've eaten well. You've enjoyed just a, a good rest under the stars. Life is good. You just had a wonderful harvest after many years of famine. All is well. Until he wakes up and you're, his feet are cold, which is the worst. He wakes up, his feet is cold, are cold. He, went, he goes to grab a blanket and there's a strange woman lying next to him. What would you do? How would you respond in this moment? It's dark. There's no street lights. So he asks, who are you? And friends, I think this is a fair question. And I imagine it was a little bit more like, intense than who are you. But considering the, the rampant immorality that was taking place at the threshing room floor. There's prostitution all over the place. And Boaz being a moral man, Boaz being a godly man, he's not expecting any company. But he hears a familiar voice, which I assume gives him some security, as Ruth replies, I'm Ruth. It's okay. I'm your servant. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Remember, Naomi had instructed Ruth to be silent in this moment. Naomi's instructions was for Ruth to lay there and wait for Boaz to tell her what to do. She was supposed to let Boaz take the initiative. However, whether out of faith or out of fear of being dangerously ambiguous and and assuming that, well, maybe he will have the the wrong idea of what I'm doing here or, or just the simple inability to keep her mouth shut, Ruth, she wanted to make her intentions clear right away. So she blurts out to Boaz with her whole heart, and essentially she asks him to marry her. In the ancient world, the covering someone with the corner of their robe is, is equivalent to dropping on one knee and, and offering an engagement ring. Essentially, Ruth is quoting the modern scholar Beyonce, and she's telling Boaz, put a ring on it. But even more, she's reminding him of his prayer last week, his prayer in the field, she's saying, do you remember that time when you, you prayed that the Lord would take me under his wing? Do you remember when you prayed that I would find refuge? Well, Naomi and I have been thinking, and we think that, well, the Lord is going to use you to answer your own prayer. Now, we have to understand that Ruth's wild request was at best socially awkward and at worst extremely offensive here. It was entirely countercultural for a woman to propose to a man or a younger person to an older person, a field worker to the land owner, yet here's a Moabite servant girl asking her Israelite boss to marry her. From a natural perspective, this plan is, looks like, man, this is, this does not look good. But how will Boaz respond? Which leads us to scene three, the promise in verse 10. He said to her, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. In other words, Boaz is pumped. He's excited. You see, up to this point, Ruth has been in mourning. She has been unavailable. But once she removed her mourning garment, she became a free agent. And let's be honest, Ruth was way out of Boaz's league. She could have picked anyone. That's what Boaz is saying here. He's older than her. He's probably closer to Naomi's age. She could have picked anyone. And Boaz knew this. He wasn't stupid. 
He knew that Ruth could have her pick of a man, but Ruth, she decided not to pursue a guy out of greed. And she decided not to pursue a guy simply out of attraction and passion. And stepping back for a moment, we have to, we have to marvel at the purity of both Boaz and Ruth in this moment. Ruth makes no sexual advance towards Boaz. The removing of the blanket over his feet, that was not what it seems in this moment. She was not making an advance to, in an effort to win him. And Boaz, he makes no attempt to take advantage of Ruth, but instead, what does he do? The first thing he does is he prays for her. Now, it's noteworthy to step back and look at Proverbs 31. And the reason for this is Proverbs 31 is famously known as a proverb that, that, that gives a, a description of a godly woman. And in the Hebrew Bible, the order of the books of the Bible are a little bit different. In our English Bible, Ruth comes after the book of Judges. And in the time frame and, and everything, that makes sense. In the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is placed directly after Proverbs. And so what you have is you're reading about this this description of a godly woman in Proverbs 31, and then you immediately see this exemplified in the life of Ruth. Proverbs 31, 31 says, Give her the reward of her labor and let her works praise her at the city gates. Now look at what Boaz says in Ruth 3.11. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town or all the people in the city gates, they know that you're a woman of noble character. You see, Ruth is the picture of a Proverbs 31 woman, and her faithfulness has indeed been praised at the city gates. Her reputation has preceded her. She has only been there for a few months, but yet her humility, her, her work ethic, and her faithfulness, people have taken notice. In just a few months, man, her reputation is that of someone who is, who is godly. But just as the happy ending seems secured here, Boaz raises a problem, and their happily ever after is put on hold. Look at verse 12. And I, I feel like a sense that his heart just kind of sank as he remembered, there is someone who's closerly, closer related to you than I am. It's true that I'm a family redeemer, and there's someone that can, has more right to this than I do. And so he says, stay here tonight, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you, but if he doesn't redeem you, as the Lord lives... I will. Now lay down and let's, let's get some sleep. Now understand, neither Boaz or this potential redeemer, as I said earlier, has an obligation to actually redeem Ruth. Naomi's whole plan is hinging on a, a moral obligation. Someone who is going to respond to this moral compass, so to speak. But even more so, Naomi's plan hinges on one of these men being excited about, being willing, desiring to do this for Ruth. And Boaz, he sees the opportunity of marrying Ruth and redeeming her and Naomi. He sees it as a gift. He's excited about this. And being a man of character, though, he doesn't want to take or steal this opportunity away from the one who rightfully deserves it, who's more qualified. However, Boaz assures Ruth, whether it's the other dude or it's me, I promise you, you will be redeemed. There's nothing we can do about it tonight. Let's get some sleep. And I imagine Ruth, I, I imagine her falling fast asleep under the protection of Boaz, but I, I imagine Boaz laying there wide awake, working through a solution to this problem. But either way, this leads us to our fourth and final scene, the provision in verse 14. So she lay down at his feet until morning, 
So I got up while it was still dark. Then Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he told Ruth, bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl and she went into her, the town. It's early in the morning. The sun is yet to rise. But Boaz, he gently shakes Ruth and wakes her up. And, and he wants to get her home, essentially, before anyone sees that she is there. And he knows it's not because they did anything scandalous, but it's, he knows how quick the gossip spreads back in town. Remember, when Ruth and Naomi showed up, that gossip train started right away. And so, in an effort to protect Ruth once again, he wants to preserve her dignity. He wants to preserve her reputation. And Boaz, being the generous guy that he is, he doesn't want to send Ruth home empty-handed. So he stocks her up with more grain to take back to Naomi. Many scholars say that it was about 90 pounds worth, but I can't imagine that her shawl would carry 90 pounds and then her carrying it down the hill back home. And so I believe it's like six scoops that he put in her shawl and that she carried it back. But either way, he provided her with more food to go back home to Naomi. He knows that also, if she stopped by somebody on the way back home, she has an excuse now of why she was at the threshing room floor. I, I was going to get barley. And so he really sets her up, not only to provide for her, but to, to, to keep her safe and her reputation safe. And chapter 3 ends the same way chapter 2 ended. But Ruth returning home to tell Naomi about her adventure. Look at verse 16. She went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked, What happened, my daughter? The Ruth, then Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. Now, a more accurate translation of this question, who are you, my daughter, there, there's, it, it, that doesn't, there's a more accurate translation of this. In the Hebrew, it, it's, it's actually, who are you? Not, what have you done? Or what happened? Okay? So, in our English translation, it says, what happened? But Hebrew, it says, who are you? And if we're honest, that doesn't really make sense. Ruth showing up back home and Naomi saying, who are you? And so the translation, who and what, are very, is the same word. And so they translate as what happened. But just because the question doesn't fit doesn't mean it's not correct. I think that's why it's translated as such. But the question, who are you? It doesn't speak to the fact that Naomi forgot who Ruth was or forgot what Ruth looked like. But rather, it points to Naomi's internal struggle that she's been wrestling with since the beginning of our book. This entire narrative, she's been struggling to understand her relationship with Ruth. She's been ultimately asking, who is this girl? Is she a person of no significance? Is she an outsider? Is she an outcast? Or is she, in fact, more significant than I had ever dreamed? And as Naomi is deep in thought, Ruth shows up. Who are you? In other words, what happened? It, we're getting the same question. But it's just so much more beautiful when you understand what it, it, it means in the original text. But Ruth continues to report in verse 17. She said, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Naomi said, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest until he resolves this today. As Ruth returned with even more grain, Naomi can't help in this moment but to feel overwhelmed by God's grace, overwhelmed by his provision. Remember, back in chapter 1, she described herself as what? Not only bitter, but as empty. Her circumstances had left her feeling hopeless. 
her circumstances had left her feeling lost. But God proved to her that He had never left her. In fact, He had been providentially guiding each and every one of her steps, fulfilling all of her needs through Boaz and Ruth. The Lord had provided food for her hunger and rest for her head. And now the question is, will the Lord now withhold the one thing left that she needs, a descendant? Well, you're going to have to wait till next week in Ruth chapter 4 for that. But in light of this question we have to consider the significance of Boaz's earlier response in verse 12. When he says this, there is a redeemer closer than I am. It's true that Boaz may have been talking about some other family member. A guy that we'll meet next week in chapter 4. But his response points us to a greater truth. A greater redeemer. You see, all throughout this story, there has been a redeemer for Ruth and for Naomi that's been closer than Boaz. Closer than this other guy. A Redeemer that's been hovering in the shadows of this narrative and behind every human agent. This Redeemer has been lavishly pouring out His grace. You see, the real love story in this book is not Boaz and Ruth. There has been a greater love story that's been being told behind the scenes. And it's the love of God for His sinful people. And it's the same love that prevented Him from destroying Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned. It's the same love that called Abraham. It's the same love that pursued the Israelites despite the history and their pattern of idolatry and rebellion. It's the same love that causes the sun to shine and causes the rain to fall. And it's this love of God that took its fullest shape in the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His love for us took Him so much farther than a grain pile at midnight. What Ruth did was risky, but what Jesus did was deadly. It caused him to leave the glories of heaven and to be born as a baby in Bethlehem. But unlike Ruth, there was no place for Jesus to rest his head. He had to do with a a stable, and, and he then had to run away. There was no godly Boaz to protect him. In fact, him and his family had to flee for his life to Egypt when he was just a young child. And this love caused Jesus to become a servant who was of no reputation. He was despised and rejected by men. The same love of God took Jesus all the way to the cross. There in the midst of darkness, far deeper than the darkness at the threshing room floor at midnight, Jesus offered Himself up for the sins of His people. There on the cross, God the Father abandoned His Son. He could not look upon His Son as He took upon Himself the sins of the world. He was so disfigured God could not and would not look at him. Jesus didn't just willingly risk his life like Ruth did. But he willingly gave his life. Why? Why would Jesus do such a thing? Was it because you earned his love? Was it because you deserve his love? Not at all. According to Romans 6, the only thing that we have earned, the only thing that we deserve is is sin and death Hell, however, God loves us so much that He committed to saving sinners like you and sinners like me that He gave His one and only Son. And whoever, whoever trusts in Him will not die, but will have life. And it's all because God is faithful to the undeserving. And the faithfulness of Boaz and the faithfulness of Ruth and the faithfulness of Naomi all point to the greater faithfulness of God. And as you sit there this morning, I can't help but wonder if you know this love of God. Really know it. This morning, I'd like to invite you to give your life to Him if you don't. Yes, the truth is, you may be disfigured by sin. You may be feeling the the overwhelming hopelessness of guilt 
and shame. But your life, friends, as disfigured as it may be, is all you have to give. So give it to Him. And He promises He will redeem you. He will receive you into His family. He will cover you with His wings and He will be in His refuge. He will spread the blanket of Christ's righteousness over your nakedness and you can stand before a holy and righteous God confident because it doesn't see the mess, but He sees the righteousness of Christ that was gifted to you. Christian, it doesn't matter how undeserving you are. No matter what you've done or where you've been, this invitation is open for you to come and be redeemed. God will welcome you for the sake of Christ. He loves you that much. If you're sitting here this morning and you are in Christ, you are a Christian, Ruth 3 forces us to step back for a moment. Ruth 3 forces us to evaluate our faith and ask ourselves, what am I willing to risk for the sake of the gospel? What am I willing to risk for the sake of Christ being known in my workplace, in my home, in my community? If we're honest about our life, most of us, well, let's be honest, most of us aren't willing to risk all that much, especially when it comes to our health, when it comes to our reputation, when it comes to our families, when it comes to our bank accounts, or especially when it comes to our comfort. That's just the society we live in. That's our culture. The proof of this is in our, seen in our unwillingness to tell other people about God. We don't want them to think we're weird, but what Francis Chafer calls our guilty silence I think most of us are guilty of that. Forget about putting our reputation at risk at midnight at the threshing room floor. We struggle to talk to our friends about Jesus because we don't want them to think we're weird or we're worried we'll offend them. I once heard it said that when you're convinced of God's love for you, when you're absolutely convinced of His extravagant grace in your life, God's love is like an acrobat's harness. If you picture an acrobat harnessed in, they're jumping all over the place without fear. You're free to take seemingly risky, costly decisions for the sake of the gospel because you know that God's love is steadfast. You know that His grace is lavishly being poured out in your life. Brothers and sisters, audacious and expectant Christian faith grows when you take pleasure in the steadfast kindness and love of God. Tell me, can your faith be described as expectant? Can your faith be described as audacious? If not, perhaps you're not completely confident in God's love for you. Perhaps you're not completely confident in His provision for you. Perhaps you're not completely confident in His protection. Take some time this morning to delight in who God is. Rest in the goodness of your God. Take some time. And take that step of faith, whether it's sharing the gospel at work with a neighbor, a family member, whether it's reading your Bible with your wife, whether it's serving on, at Mission Kids on Sunday morning, what risks can you take to partner with God to see His kingdom come here in Las Vegas as it is in heaven? Those are risks that we need to be taken. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Ruth chapter 3. A beautiful story that points ultimately to the love story between you and, and the church. Lord, we thank you for your love that there's nothing we can do on our own. We can try and try and we'll fail. And the truth is, a lot of times that failure prevents us from pursuing after you. 
good news is, is that our failure, our success, is not determine our standing with you, but rather our trust in Christ. The fact that we're hidden in Christ is is what secures us. So there's nothing we could do to earn your love or deserve your love. Jesus has accomplished it all. I pray, Lord, that we would simply be able to rest in the good news of the gospel, that we would leave here this morning on a gospel cloud, so to speak, knowing that we have nothing, nothing to lose, that your love for us can be an acrobat's harness as we go out to live on mission. And we can trust in your love. We can trust in your provision. We can trust in your protection. We give you all the glory, God. And we ask, Lord, that you would just continue to reveal more clearly who you are to us. That we would see more clearly our need for a Savior. And that we would just rest in the good news of the Gospel. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.